Well, hello, and welcome back to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. The current series we started a few weeks back now is titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book I wrote, which has the same title, and it's available on Amazon.com. This is episode number eight in the series, and we'll start off today picking up where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. We're talking about only the scriptures in the New Testament that directly pertain to when the called out, or ecclesia, gather in the name of Jesus. What's the purpose of that? What should they be accomplishing when they get together? How should they function? And why such a thing as the ecclesia even exists? We're also talking about some of the scriptures that have been misused to support activities and group efforts of the ecclesia, things that we see happening in the church today. But before we get started with that, I wanted to let you know that this week I put together a very short video mini-series called How to Tell if It's the End of the World. I know, sounds pretty ominous. <laughs> I think the first video is a little over five minutes and the second one's just a little over eight minutes. Well, in the late 90s, I started writing a monthly Bible prophecy-related publication after I noticed a second-coming fervor among Christians because of the impending threat of Y2K and all that that was supposed to do. Many literally thought it would trigger the end of the world and the return of Jesus. They thought their belief was soundly based on Bible prophecy. That's what happens when we take the headlines of the day and superimpose them over Bible prophecy. Well, the purpose of the publication, which was called The Watchful Watchman, was to contrast what the Bible really has to say about the actual signs that will foretell the second coming of Jesus from what the modern false prophets were saying, which is essentially, I mean, the, the buzz phrase is, prophecies are being fulfilled every day. That's just meant to hype us up. <laughs> the return of Jesus, according to them, could happen at any moment and without any warning. Well, uh, to make a long story short, what I found in my studies, I used to believe that. I believed in an imminent return of Jesus, like we could walk out of here right now and we would all get sucked up to heaven because Jesus is going to sneak back. He's going to do a sneak attack and... Um, take the Christians up without warning, and leave the rest of the world in confusion. I wholeheartedly believe that. Well, I don't now, and I haven't for a couple, three decades, because of further study, deep study. I believe that Jesus is going to return and rescue his ecclesia in the middle of some really bad times going on. Not the wrath of God, but at the hand of the Antichrist. Anyway... A lot of these prophecies get misused, saying that there are going to be general bad things going on, and so we must be seeing the fulfillment of those prophecies related to these general bad things happening, so Jesus could return at any moment. So, at the same time, they were saying that they just really feel it, you know, and I hear that all the time. I just really feel that Jesus is uh, going to return any day. Well, I'm no psychologist, but I'm going to guess what people were and are now feeling is simply anxiety as a result of things being out of their control. 
And they're looking for a rescuer, which if you're a Christian, of course, that rescuer is Jesus. I grew up with this same thing going on during the Cold War. Uh, that's when I started reading Bible prophecy books, and they were all talking about all of these different prophecies that were being fulfilled, and we're going to see Jesus return any day. You know, some were saying as late as in the 80s. Well, this was back when, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev <laughs> was supposed to be the Antichrist, and Pope John Paul II was the false prophet. Well, of course, both of them are dead now, <laughs> and we're down the road you know, 40, 50 years from when I was first hearing these things. And I, I've read stuff my grandpa wrote in the 40s, and he was hearing the same thing then. And I've read history where people have been talking about this type of phenomenon, uh, you know, a thousand years ago. So anyway, recently, for the last couple of years, I've noticed the prophecies being fulfilled every day and the I just feel it chatter really increasing on social media. So I put together these videos as my response, which is essentially to say, stay watchful for the actual signs of Jesus's return, which we are clearly given in scripture, but just chillax. <laughs> Abide in Christ until he comes again. Well, unfortunately, to keep the videos short so I can hold people's attention, which, am I losing you right now? Come back to me. I had to omit any of the normal scriptural case for the claims that I make. You know, I'm, I usually just uh, make my case ad nauseum, and so I write 530-page books to, <laughs> to support my claims. But anyway, I make my case in the first book that I wrote called Watch. Watch is uh, really a product of that uh, monthly publication that I did back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, watch, uh, like I just said, it served as the basis for that book, but it also served as the basis for my first podcast series on the Called Out Cafe, which is a still it's still available, although not yet on YouTube as of right now. I intend someday, Lord willing, to get it imported over to YouTube. Well, if you haven't read Watch, I really think you should, but if you haven't read it and you haven't or you haven't listened to the podcast series which is based on that book these videos would be a great introduction to the topic of what we as called out ones are to watch for in regards to Jesus's return those videos are available on my YouTube channel if you go there please consider subscribing to the channel so anyway let's get started with Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 to 16 and talk about rank and status in the ecclesia. Well, most humans believe that they deserve more if they have done more. Whether it's more punishment for someone who has done a greater wrong, or more compensation for someone who has worked harder or for longer hours. Yet, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard tells us that those who labor for Jesus are all equal in his eyes and will receive the same reward, regardless of their seniority. The reward for the newly elect will be the same for those who have served Jesus their entire lives. Although Scripture indicates some may end up with more responsibility in the age to come as they serve Jesus, the one and only rank of each individual called out one is that of priest 
No matter how much burden someone imposes on themselves and sweats for Jesus, the only work that ever mattered is the work of God. That's a direct quote. And that is of believing in Jesus. All who are of the ecclesia walk in those works that they were appointed to by God to walk in. We're going to be talking more about walking in the good works of God later. Uh, But for now, please just get that we are all equal in the body of the ecclesia, and our rank is that of priest, regardless of your individual responsibility that you're given. Let's move on to Matthew 21, verse 12, and talk about how the Jewish temple is not equated with the ecclesia. Matthew 21.12 relays the story of Jesus entering the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers. Famous story. There are many scriptures which pertain to the Jewish temple which existed in Jerusalem until 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. Sometimes these scriptures are used to superimpose the institutional church over the top of what was the temple. You know, the church has become the Jewish religion. And we hear scriptures pulled from the Old Testament all the time saying what the church should be doing because the church is now what was the Jewish religion. Well, the activities that went on at the temple normally have nothing to do with what goes on in a house of worship, such as a synagogue or a church. The temple in Jerusalem in no way represents modern houses of Christian or Jewish worship. If anything, there may be some comparisons of the Hebrew temple with the people who make up the ecclesia. Paul tells us that the physical bodies of the individual called out ones are to be considered the temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Some today compare the Jewish synagogue to Christian churches in that both are meeting places for religious purposes. To try and make the point that we, like Jesus, should attend church, they also might point out that Jesus attended the synagogue. Well, Jesus did attend, and he taught in synagogues, at least periodically. You can read about that in Mark 6, verse 2, and Luke 6, also verse 2. Hopefully I got those references right, and that's not just a coincidence. But in Jesus' day, many observant and devout Jews did not attend synagogues for the purpose of worshiping and learning about God. Lack of attending synagogue was not necessarily because of a lack of belief in God or backsliding, like some today might assume about a Christian who doesn't attend church. Understanding that in the first century there were at least nine different Jewish sects, and many subsects under those, it was the sect only of the Pharisees who are mainly known to have assembled on the Sabbath. In the first century AD, synagogues were multi-purpose communal buildings. They were used for various functions, including communal meals. It wasn't until sometime after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you know, decades after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, that the modern idea of the synagogue started to form under the leadership of the rabbis. To compare going to the temple or even attending a first-century synagogue 
with attending a 21st century church is not an apples and apples comparison. It's an unleavened bread and a chocolate Easter bunny comparison. Anyway, the church and the temple in Jerusalem, if you hear comparisons made, they were not the same. <laughs> Moving on to Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22, and talking about the attitude towards money that the ecclesia should have. Giving money, I, I even hate right now talking about this <laughs> because of the numerous dozens and dozens of sermons that I've heard on this. But giving money has been the topic of countless sermons in the church. Giving money has been made a part of almost every church gathering in the form of the offering that's taken. According to many pastors, your checkbook, for those of you who remember checkbooks, <laughs> or your Venmo account, is a direct indicator of your heart and your attitude towards God. I will not take on the entire subject of tithing or giving money to the church in this episode or right now. That can wait until it comes up again later. But remember, everything in creation belongs to God. After all, regardless of what mortals think they own, in reality it is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine, at least according to Psalms 50 verses 10 to 12. Even though it all already belongs to God, when Jesus was confronted with a question regarding paying taxes, Jesus identified money as something that belongs to the government, or Caesar, as it talks about in uh, Mark 12, verses 13 to 17, and Luke 20, verses 19 to 26. Well, Jesus' ruling was that taxes should be paid to the government, who creates the money and the system that gives the money its value, and that we should likewise give to God that which is God's, as though the government's money and what belongs to God are not <laughs> the same things. Earlier, when confronted with paying the temple tax, Jesus told Peter that those who belong to his family, you know, the family of God, are free from paying such a fee which provides support for the house or the temple, which already belong to God and his family. Jesus treated the one unique temple as it was indeed his father's house on earth. But again, the Jewish temple and how it was supported has nothing to do with the modern houses of worship. So hear this. On two separate occasions, Jesus openly displayed his heart regarding what he thought of about money in relation to his father's house. He flipped over the tables of the money changers and drove them out with a whip. They were in the business of exchanging unholy money for holy money so that those who couldn't provide animals of their own to sacrifice could purchase them with clean money. They'd reduce something that was originally supposed to be about the attitude of a person's heart towards God down to an issue of cash. Jesus openly showed how those two things were not compatible. A house dedicated to God was no place for matters related to money to be occurring. Jesus addresses money elsewhere in the scriptures. 
His core message is that of not being distracted by money or placing any importance on it, especially where it competes with the place in one's heart that only God belongs. Money and seeking wealth is unfortunately a problem for many people. It becomes their master, and Jesus said that that can't be the case. Prioritizing wealth over God is why it's more difficult for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than to inherit the kingdom of God. Where's that scripture? That's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. It's why Jesus had high praise for the old woman in the temple who, although she gave little, she gave all she had. Read that story in Mark 12, 41 to 44, and Luke 21, 1 to 4. The old woman, giving all she had, was not establishing a principle about giving money. It was a principle about having our priorities right. Taving, taking an offering is a well-ensconced practice in almost every church service. But what we have found so far in Scripture regarding Jesus' opinions of and attitude towards money and how it should be used where it concerns the things of God should cause us to wonder why the offering has been given such status. Jesus has clearly said that it is not money that we owe to God, our Father, or that God expects from His children. What He wants is for us to live as though He is the highest priority in our lives. If it's true that taking an offering is only an opportunity for us to demonstrate God is more important to us than the things of this world are, and to make sure that we have our priorities right, then why doesn't the pastor ask the drug addict to give a portion of his or her cannabis, or those addicted to pornography to drop their nasty magazines in the offering plate? Demonstrating our heart to God when we come together as his ecclesia is an unbiblical practice. Sure, there may be need for it, as we'll talk about later, in certain circumstances, but the predominance that it takes in a church service is completely unbiblical. Think about this. What, what is it in your life that you would have to take to church with you and drop in the offering plate to demonstrate that God is more important than that? We're just not asked to do that physically. We're asked to make that adjustment in our heart. And I trust that if you are a real called-out one, that you have done that and you continue to do that. Demonstrating that in a church service is just uncalled for. Let's move on. Matthew chapter 24 to 25 and the hope of Jesus' coming. Well, what is the hope of one who believes in Jesus? Is it that he will straighten out our lives and bless us here and now on this earth? That all will go well with us if we only believe in Him? We'll enjoy success, good health, a long life, and prosperity? Although some believe these things, is it not the truth that our hope is in and what lies ahead of us? That Jesus will return and put things right over all the entire earth? That there will be no more pain or sorrow? That Satan will be bound and death and hell will be done away with? that we will live throughout eternity in vibrant, immortal bodies designed for communion with God. Hand in glove with belief in who Jesus is, 
is the biblical hope in what he said will occur in the future. In this world, which is still the kingdom of Satan, we're promised trials, tribulations, persecution, and pain. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Well, those who are purchased with the blood of Jesus are promised something quite to the contrary in the future. It's those things which are promised which comprise our great hope. Matthew chapters 24 and 25, along with Luke chapter 21 and Mark 13, document Jesus' own discourse on his return at the end of this age. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. You've heard me mention that many times before now. His return constitutes the epicenter of the believer's hope. The New Testament is saturated with scripture related to his second coming and the future hope of believers. Whereas now, an average Sunday sermon may address dating, diversity, or divorce, along with countless other topics which have to do with coping with this present life and trying to make this world, the kingdom of Satan, a better place, the primal church, the early church, was preoccupied with the hope of the coming of Jesus. We have so lost that today. I've heard pastors with pride talking about, I don't really know much about that topic. And then, of course, they launch into a sermon on it. Anyway, the hope of the coming of Jesus was very important to the early church and should be now to the ecclesia. Moving on to Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 12. I'm just giving you the reference of most of these so we don't have to take the time in the podcast to for me to read those. I trust that you can read them. Anyway, Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 12 is what we're talking about now. Jesus was not only highly critical of the Jewish leaders of his day, but he also gave warning for anyone in the future who may aspire to be a religious leader. He uses the word hypocrite many times in referring to these leaders. He accuses them of being pretentious, false teachers, and placing undue burdens on people and being blind guides. He clearly warns us to let no one call you teacher, for there is one teacher, and that is Jesus, and to let no one call you father, because there is only one father, God in heaven. No, it is not wrong to teach. (laughs) Because of the relationship between students and teachers in the ancient world, To call someone a teacher back then was essentially to call them your master. The first century teacher did not merely impart information to you. The title came with an unquestioning loyalty. Students surrendered their will to their masters. The authority of their masters, or teachers, was not to be questioned. Those who belong to Jesus should always question what they're told in the name of their one and only master, Jesus, while they remain loyal only to him. Those things that I just mentioned, unquestioning authority, not to be questioned, surrendering your will to a person. I don't know about where you're going to church currently, but I have spoken to many, many people who give that kind of loyalty to their pastor. I know that that was expected in several of the churches that I went to, some more than others, but all to a certain degree. 
Anyway, that is not a good thing. There is one master, one teacher. Of course, there are many teachers now, but it's uh, like I'm teaching right now. I, my, I have a teaching ministry. I, I ask and I beg you, please question what I'm saying. Study it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. I, can, I won't be held accountable in eternity for what you end up believing. Um, these are just things that I believe God has showed me and for you to question. Moving on. Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51, regarding servants of Jesus. There are many parts that make up the whole identity of those who are members of Jesus' ecclesia. Besides being a part of the family of Jesus, every called out one is also a bondservant of Jesus. The ecclesia have been purchased with a great price. They're a voluntary bondservant, but nevertheless, a bondservant of Jesus. Being a servant of Christ is the chief characteristic that the apostles all identified themselves with. The servants who make up the ecclesia are all members of the same household. The parable of the servants found in Matthew chapter 24. While making the point that those who belong to Jesus are his servants, it speaks of the importance of keeping the faith and tending to the master's business while he is away. Jesus is currently away. What that business is, what we individually will do in the name of Jesus for our master, it's going to probably differ for every called out one as the Holy Spirit leads us and not the agenda of humans. Okay, so let's move on. Got to get this done before Jesus returns. Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46. This is going to be talking about works-based judgment. Well, and this is like one of the most misused passages of Scripture that I've ever heard misused on Sunday mornings. Matthew chapter 25 is a continuation of Jesus's Olivet Discourse in which he's discussing his return at the end of this age. But because what is called the sheep and goats judgment is so often used by preachers to motivate their congregation to do good works, or else, I can't pass this section by. After all, good works have been said by some to be the reason that the church exists. The words, quote, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, unquote, echo loudly in my ears. I devote a chapter to this specific biblical judgment in my book, Watch. But for now, the sheep and goats judgment is a works, not grace, based judgment that will take place in the future when Jesus returns to this earth at the end of the age. Well, that doesn't narrow it down much because there's a couple, three different judgments that are going to be going on in the future. God's wrath will have been poured out, and much of the world's population will have perished because of that. The called out will have already been judged and rescued by Jesus prior to God's wrath being poured out on the earth. That's what the, That rescue is what many call the rapture. It's during the sheep and goats judgment that Jesus will declare which survivors of God's wrath on the earth will go on to populate the planet in Jesus' millennial kingdom. He's coming back and he's going to literally rule on this planet for a thousand years. Well, it's not going to just be an empty planet. He's going to have those um, 
priests, us, who have been raptured and uh, given our glorified eternal bodies to help him rule over this earth. Well, the earth isn't empty. We're going to have stuff to do. There will be a remnant of Jews that he's preserved that have decided that he is the Messiah. That's the passage referring to the 144,000. And there's going to be survivors who make it through the tribulation period and God's wrath being poured out. They are going to be the ones that go through this sheep and goats judgment to see if they're worthy to live on in the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to rule over with a rod of iron. Well, those that don't stack up to the criteria listed in Matthew chapter 25 will be sentenced to hell. Caring for other members of the family of God is among the organic responses of the called out to the gospel as the Holy Spirit makes himself known in the life of the believer. We can think of it as a fruit of the Spirit. There are many passages of Scripture which make a sound biblical case for this. However, the parable of the sheep and goats is not one of those passages. This specific judgment, the sheep and goats judgment, has to do with how those who are not saved by grace prior to the return of Christ may be allowed to physically continue to exist on the earth along with the remnant of the righteous Jews that Jesus is going to miraculously protect at the end of the age. I think I'm going to take the time to read this passage. I want to do so because it is so often used in church to try to motivate people to do good works. Anyway, this is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 until um, we get done with it. Yeah, about, yeah, verse 46, chapter 25, 31 to 46. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then... He'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then... He will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is the sheep and goats judgment. That is clearly a works-based judgment based on all of that list of things that people either did or they did not do. 
one of the main observations you need to get here is that it's when they did those things specifically to the least of these, my brothers. Well, who is identified with Jesus? Is it just anyone? Is it any old pagan? Any non-believer? No. These are the brothers of Jesus. How did the family of God get treated by these, these people? How did the remnant of Jews who survive and recognize Jesus as the Messiah, how did they get treated by these people? That is what they're going to be judged by, a very works-based, not grace-based judgment, a way to uh, a path to salvation, a path to living on in the millennial kingdom. Those that don't cut the mustard are sentenced to hell. They go to the place that's reserved for uh, Satan. And those that did good things are going to be allowed to live on into the millennial kingdom. Like I say, this passage gets used all the time to create outreach ministries uh, in different churches to go out into the community and uh, provide clothing or start a prison ministry or pick your ministry based on this passage. It gets used for that. And in fact, this is not directed at the ecclesia. This is directed at people who are not in the ecclesia and how they will be judged. Anyway, that is that passage. Anyway, moving on to the final topic of this episode. It's found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 30, in regards to the Lord's Supper. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he shared his last meal with his disciples. We can read about that in Mark 14, 12 to 26, in addition to this Matthew 26, 26 to 30 passage. It was the annual Passover Seder that brought them together. Annual. However, Jesus, big shocker here, did not institute what we call the Lord's Supper or communion at that time. While he did not institute a new standalone ceremony or rite, he did change the meaning of two different parts within the existing Passover Seder, which had been celebrated since the time of Moses. Please get this. This is not something new Jesus created. It's something that he changed the meaning in an existing practice. The scripture said that while Jesus was sharing the meal, which normally consists of 15 steps and is saturated with tradition, Jesus took some unleavened bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and gave it to the disciples. However, unlike any Passover Seder that had previously occurred in Jewish history, Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body. Because of when this took place during the meal, according to Scripture, the bread that he broke may have been what's called the afikomen, Afikomen is a piece of bread which had been earlier broken off during the Seder from an unleavened piece of bread called matzah and set aside to be eaten at the end of the meal. So this probably or possibly took place at the end of the meal. To some Jews, this bread is seen as representing redemption and is a reminder of the Passover sacrifice. Jesus said the broken bread eaten during the annual Seder should, from that point on, stand as a symbolic reminder of him being the sacrifice. You know, so get this. For many, many years, 
these guys Jesus was with and all of their ancestors, back to Moses' day, had been celebrating this meal, eating this afikoman, that possibly the afikoman portion of the Passover Seder, looking at it as though it is the represents redemption. And now Jesus is taking this same piece of bread and saying, this piece of bread, this redeeming piece of bread represents him being the sacrifice. Well, there were also traditionally four cups of wine that were consumed during the Passover Seder. It's likely during the third cup, the cup of blessing or redemption again, that Jesus said this, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. During a meal, which all the traditions and what to say was very well known by everybody present, even scripted, Jesus again changed the script, the tradition. But he did so in the context of a long-held annual traditional meal that symbolized and commemorated many great acts of God, the Passover Seder. He did not instruct his disciples to cease celebrating the Passover Seder in the future or even to change any of the other traditional practices within the meal. Those things within Judaism all continue to have rich symbolic meaning. What Jesus did did not erase those things. It fulfilled a couple of them. He told them that whenever they eat the Passover meal in the future, the afikoman, probably the afikoman, now represents his body, and the cup of redemption now represents his blood. What we know as communion was originally celebrated by Jesus' apostles within the context of the entire Passover Seder, an annual celebration. Well, during the Passover Seder, nothing mystical happened. Everyone who participated understood everything that occurred to be a symbolic memorial of something that had occurred in history having to do with the Exodus. Jesus like I just said, changed two of the symbols to represent something that he was about to do. But those elements of the meal remained symbols and not a magical way of reproducing the actual body and blood of Jesus' body, as many believe takes place during the Eucharist. John chapter 6 almost entirely deals with the significance of consuming Jesus' body and blood. In the end, Jesus makes clear that everything he said on that subject was symbolic language, representing spiritual realities. If I didn't mention that, that's John chapter 6, verse 63. Years after the Last Supper, the quote, Last Supper, unquote, the Apostle Paul informed the local ecclesia in Corinth of only the changes that Jesus made during the Passover Seder that Jesus shared with his disciples. The Corinthians had previously celebrated, I mean, before they came to know Jesus and follow him, they had previously celebrated love feasts and other such pagan rituals prior to converting to Christianity. Since Paul's visit, the Corinthians replaced their pagan rituals by instituting a new tradition which emulated the breaking of the bread by Jesus and the passing of the cup. Not being Jews, they didn't know anything. They knew nothing of the rest of what was to take place during a Passover Seder. It wasn't their religion. It's not something that we are called to uh, 
participate in now. We're not the ones that had the exodus. Well, they had gotten how they were commemorating the meal so wrong that Paul had to write and tell them that what they were doing was not the Lord's Supper that they were celebrating. While Paul never discouraged the Lord's Supper, he, he also never placed any importance on continuing it. He never mentioned it to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. He also never wrote of it in any of his other letters to any of the other ecclesias. Nor did any other apostle ever mention the act of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Some teachers will use any passage in the New Testament which mentions the breaking of bread to mean that the partakers were engaging in the communion ritual. However, breaking bread has always simply been a term for which means to share a meal together. For example, Jesus broke bread when he fed the 5,000 on two different occasions, and that was not the Lord's Supper. There's nothing in the context anywhere the term is used that indicates anything other than sharing a meal. In fact, it's just the opposite. So it's odd that this portion of the Passover Seder that's mentioned is one of the two most non-negotiable defining rites which define Christianity, that of taking communion, communion or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or having Mass. As you're going to see in future episodes, it's also one of the most controversial ongoing topics. But that's where we're going to end it for this time. Next time, we're going to be diving into the so-called Great Commission. I know. I'm dropping a lot of bombs in this series. Please go and study these things for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Look into them. Study them. If you go and talk to your pastor about it, do not expect him to agree with what you're hearing here. He will be or she will be protecting and defending the last 2,000 years of the institutional church culture and traditions, things that they teach in seminary, and things that denominations and various conferences say that they have to preach on and believe in. Anyway, I hate to end on that note, but it is that note on which we will end. Until next time, if you choose to come back now (laughs) and listen to more bombs being dropped, may God richly bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.